1973, a group of indigenous artists formed a collective. The press called them the Indian Group of Seven. Their goal? To raise the profile of indigenous art. It was all or nothing. We're representing all our people. And create a permanent space in galleries for indigenous artists in Canada and around the world. That was really a rock star moment for me. I'm Soleil Lunier, and this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional native Indian artists, Inc. Listen wherever podcasts are heard. Art Slice is a different dive into art history. We goof around, we curse, you learn from it, but don't expect a typical lecture. You're welcome. It is Halloween. Listeners, we are doing something a little bit different for Les Spooky Season. Okay, we are here with Rum Wolf, who is a multidisciplinary installation artist. His work often includes combinations of animation, film, painting, printmaking, sculpture, all with tons of spooky references spooky, yeah. to uh, pop cultural horror and even some uh, some jabs to uh, corporations, real and or fictional. It's a, it's a whole it's a whole uh, monster mash. <laughs> yes. All right. So, Romulf, we found your work through the big free picture, which is this awesome mix of like music, video, performance, installation. And there's even like a semi-fictional narrative. Sorry. Um, am I getting all that? Is there more? Is there other layers that I missed? <laughs> Um, no, no, there's uh, you're right. There are so many different layers to it yeah. for sure. Um, which is kind of how I work in, in a lot of aspects of my life and in my work. Um, it's just, I mean, I, I don't think there's any denying that I'm a maximalist. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just as much as I can put in basically. Um, with the big free picture, it was, uh, what I really tried to do was pare it down to a level where it would actually be understandable at each layer rather than just be a complete mess. Because at the beginning mm-hmm. of it, you know, the the original pitch was there was a lot more going on as well. And then my curator, um, who really is responsible for everything that I did, she really, as great curators do, she really helped me focus it and be like, mm. this is the thing. This is what's at the heart of it. In the case of the big free picture, it was that family photograph and the story that goes along with that. But yeah, all those different layers were all designed to essentially be set up to where you could uh, you could take all of them in as a whole and they make sense as one big piece, sort of like making a movie. Um, or oh. you can just dip into whichever layer you want. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to read the story, you're welcome to. You also don't have to to get the, the point of the piece. You can also just sit in the installation and hear the sounds, hear mm-hmm. the song and, and see the visuals. Uh, or you can take not even not even experience the installation and just take that story home and read it if you want. Um, and so having all those available for the audience to interact or not interact was a big, big part of it for me, um, especially as I pushed into really my first stint of real performance art. I've been a performer for 20 years, but uh, in more traditional uh, terms, such as, you know, playing music, going out, playing at bars and things like that, playing to a lot of empty rooms like most musicians do, <laughs> um, things like that, or acting a little bit here and there mm-hmm. over the years. But I'd never really done anything that was could be considered direct performance art really until the last couple of years. And so the interactivity between myself and the audience has become a really big part of my work. Me sharing not just the things I'm working on, but me actually being in the room and uh, interacting with the audience and telling them about the work. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I, th- I find, uh, I don't know, it's changed the nature of, uh, of how people experience my work. It was something mm-hmm. about me finally just being open enough to be myself. And that's what made it, I think, relatable to mm-hmm. other people. Yeah. Because I've made lots of work before that nobody saw. 
<laughs> well, I mean, you got to do a bunch of that before people start to to see it too. It's always it's it's sometimes it's like right time, right place too. Mm-hmm. That's always an issue. Yeah, but yeah, no. Going back to the big free picture, like the the thing I that really struck me was uh, how much you were able to dive into it in in waves and layers. Mm-hmm. Like for me, at first, it was the music and and parsing out like the the static, the like fake radio, and and mm-hmm. then the the song, which I assume you you created, right? Um, <laughs> yes, I did. Um, yeah, and most of the vocal work on it is me. So mm-hmm. something I do um, as a side job, as one of my little side hustles, is a couple few years ago I was lucky enough to get hooked up with this mm-hmm. company that makes Halloween props and okay. <laughs> skeletons and masks and things like that. And so I do the sound design work for those things. So um, you know, if there's a big twelve foot mad scientist at Lowe's, that's my <laughs> voice on there. I'm the nice. guy that does that. And so um, as a person that's obsessed with Halloween and all things spooky and toy, I collect toys as well and yeah. collect Halloween props. And so it was kind of a dream gig just to get that. And I used uh, I used some of that background um, in sound design and production to uh, incorporate that into the big free picture. So mm-hmm. all of the all of the stuff with the the radio DJ is me. Mm-hmm. The uh, the song I did create. Um, there's another song in the big free picture that plays over the radio. Mm-hmm. It's called "Bored to Be Broke." That's another country song mm-hmm. that I wrote. And so mm-hmm. um, I'm glad to hear that you connected with the music because that's been something that I have been trying to connect with people on for mm-hmm. you know 25 years of being a musician. It's probably it's it is definitely the of all the disciplines that I've that I've gotten myself into that's the one that's been with me the longest and it's probably the one that I'm the most practiced at I write lots and lots of songs I've written hundreds and hundreds of them um of course all good (laughs) (laughs) but what I wanted to do with the big free picture was push into um I wanted to start seeing if I could exercise my songwriting abilities and focus them on very direct genres. So when mm-hmm. we got into the big free picture, I told my producer, I said, I want you to listen to uh, Beck's Midnight Vultures album because that's okay. what that's what we're aiming for. It's like, yeah. I want I want it to feel like that. I want it to have that pop feel to it. It was stuck in our heads by yeah. the time we uh, left the uh, installation. We were like, Shazam it, quick, quick, quick. And <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm pretty sure it was made here or made for the installation, yeah. but let's Shazam it just in case <laughs> it, didn't uh, work. <laughs> it reminds me like there was a artist i think back in the early 2000s who i loved i don't know if she like disappeared off the face of the earth but it was niobe and she she would have like radio static in between songs so it kind of felt like you were like channel shifting like as mm-hmm. you were listening to the music evolve and change so it reminded me of that a little bit but yeah it was that was great okay so there i do there, i need to put a pin in one thing you said which was your collection because stephanie thinks i have uh too big of a godzilla toy collection i'm not saying too big um but we won't, we won't get too personal yet but okay so you are the voice of the 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 monsters at lowe's what <laughs> um th- this year yeah let's see i'm trying to think if i have any at lowe's this year a lot of my Mine are at Target, actually. Okay, okay. Um, and so it's funny because there's a piece at Target that went viral this year. It's right. called uh, Lewis the Pumpkin. And okay. it, there's all, it came, it's a really funny piece because uh, every, everyone on, on TikTok was losing their mind about it. It's like this eight foot tall pumpkin ghoul. And he says something like, I'm not Jack O'Lantern. My name's Lewis. And I remember I went to Lo- or I went to Target to see it because I knew that some of my pieces were going to be out this year. And so, of oh. course, I wanted to go there and press all the buttons and hear yeah. all the different voices. And so uh, I went there and there was the piece that I did, Lewis. I pushed it. It was the exact same sound design, the same script that they sent to me. But uh, Target had put someone else's voice on it. Oh, shit. <gasps> so <laughs> all the other pieces were still my oh, voice. No. Yeah. But for whatever reason... They decided to put a different voice on it. And so I was I was just telling a friend about it the other day. I was so disappointed. I was like, are you kidding me? This thing just went viral. And I yeah. remembered the script because I went back and pulled up my old files <laughs> yeah. and everything. And I was like, 
I was trying to listen to it. I was like, is that my voice? Because sometimes I'll I'll do a lot of different voices and then yeah. I'll tweak them sometimes, you know, using some effects or whatever. And so it doesn't always sound like me. And so I was trying to remember when I listened to it at Target, I was like, I know I did this because I remembered <laughs> the script very directly because they're easy to remember because they're usually pretty cheesy. And so, uh, yeah, but yeah, they it went viral with somebody else's voice on it. It made yeah. me so <laughs> I could have been a TikTok sensation. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, just so wealthy. TikTok's going to be writing checks. That's right. Five cents but, at a time. Um, I don't think I have any pieces at Lowe's this year, but mm-hmm. um, I actually here. I actually have one right here. I'll show it to you. This would be good for spooky season. Oh so here's, oh, nice. here's one of the pieces that I did. This one was called the flaming eye, flaming eyeball one is what okay. it was called when it sent, when they sent me the file. But let's see. Beware. There are kindling spirits here. <laughs> So that you can have one, a hard time to convince me you're not just actually a vent- ventriloquist. You know? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's a pretty big chair. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's great. No, I love it. It's um, it's work that, like I said, I just lucked into. Mm-hmm. I was a, uh, I had made a video for the same company a couple years before. They had me do. It was like a mask that you could scan the QR code. And so they mm-hmm. had me do this series of videos with an actor wearing the mask. And so I did all this spooky, creepy visuals with this mask. Um, and then I did some sound design work on it. And then they asked me like several months after that, they're like, hey, how'd you like to just do sound design work for all of our products? Mm-hmm. And I was like, of course, I would love nothing more. <laughs> I would love nothing more. It's great because it allows me to exercise um well first of all it allows me to be goofy and use mm-hmm. all my crazy different voices which I like I like to do um it's something I've done since I was a child I'm sort of a um obsessive consummate performer and always have been and mm-hmm. so it allows me to do that and play with that sort of that kind of uh acting but also I get to write songs and jingles and so mm-hmm. it's like really sharpened my uh, songwriting capabilities because mm-hmm. I always have written songs I probably write anywhere from 10 to 30 a year throughout yeah. the year Nice. Uh, and then, you know, I'll live with those songs for a little while. I'll play them out. You know, some of them go away and I never play them again. But when I got this gig, you know, it's very specific. They'll say we need a 28 second file and we need it to be for this traffic light costume. So mm-hmm. can you make us <laughs> they're like, can you make a sound that goes with a traffic light? And I'll say, right. But a traffic light doesn't make a sound. So yeah. <laughs> so what do you want me to do? And they'll be like, well, that's what we hired you for. You figure it out. And so haunted, then you go in. Haunted, and- <laughs> uh, haunted one. That's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so some of them are, uh, some of them are, most of them are straight up Halloween products. And so you do it like what you heard on that one. It's a lot of like sound effects. And then I'll, I'll play some spooky music. Um, but some of them are little kids' costumes, like that traffic light, or uh, one time it was a school bus costume. Okay, I mean, and so, gotta look this traffic light costume up. Yes. Now. yes. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, well, it's funny is so, so many of them are um, they're they they end up not going into production. So a oh, lot of times okay. they'll send me they'll send me things that are essentially in the test phase. Mm, yeah. And the way it works is it's a bit it's a large company, and so they sell things to Target to Home Depot, to, uh, you know, Joann's, all kinds of things. So it's the mm-hmm. kind of company where they sell, they might make 250,000 pieces of something. Mm-hmm. And so um, what they do in a lot of those cases is they will develop a product and then they'll make a prototype out of it. And then they'll, they'll try to sell it to one of those different vendors, basically. Mm-hmm. And so if they don't get it sold, then it doesn't ever go into production. And so sometimes I have a whole, I mean, I've done probably, I don't know, 250 of them. Mm-hmm. There's definitely not 250 products out in the no. store. <laughs> but the way it works with that stuff is that it takes about two years before any product that I do actually hits the shelf. So this is the first year that the products I've been doing have actually been out in the wild. Okay. And so um, when I had my Halloween party at the Momentary on Friday the 13th, 
I went over, the company has a, a base here in town, mm-hmm. uh, like a lot of vendors do. I went over to their shop and they just essentially let me borrow dozens of these props. So I nice. had like a big 13 foot mad scientist out you in front the of the room. the B-sides, that's great. Like <laughs> yeah. all the ones that didn't make it. Oh, that's man. right, exactly. That's yeah. awesome. So, <laughs> it was cool. I had the, you know, for the big free picture, they... They asked me to do a closing reception instead of an opening reception because they knew that I I have a reputation for being the Halloween guy. Mm. <laughs> it's actually why with the big free picture, because this was my sort of uh, entree into the art world, as it were, as a mm-hmm. solo show. I wanted to make sure that I didn't push right into horror because so much of the stuff I do is certainly it's all pop culture based, but so much of it is influenced by horror. And I didn't want to come out of the gate as the spooky guy. Well, there was the one like skeleton mask or something there that you're just kind of what the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. For the party, it was great. Um, you know, I think as as performance artists and installation artists, we're not we're not going to get popular usually, mm-hmm. you know, there's in a very small circle, perhaps mm-hmm. like, you know, even the most popular artists in the world. Like if I go to my mom and say, do you know who Jeff Koons is? She's going to say, no, I don't. I don't yeah. know who that is. Mo- and most people don't, you know, yeah. and this guy's like the most famous living artist, essentially. So it's interesting to um, be able to feel that every once in a while, whenever you have a piece that really connects with an audience. Mm-hmm. It's one reason why I like to perform as well, because it makes me feel like, I don't know, I'm more connected to something that matters in a bigger way or that people are paying attention to. Yeah. I think we we feel that like we, I think that's one of the reasons why we started this podcast is because like we were both like studio rats, like studio artists, mm-hmm. you know. And there wasn't like a performative. Well, I guess you did a little bit of performance art, but yeah, but it was bit. it was really a studio practice yeah, before we, we started the pod. It starts feeling like you can't connect with certain people, like it's a niche within a niche. You know what I mean? So I, I totally feel that. That's that's such a good way to take it. Well, I like now. It seems like art, especially with performance art, and you know the the meow wolf folks can mm-hmm. definitely be credited for oh, a yeah. lot of this. Yeah. Like it's become yeah. like artists are becoming rock stars almost. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's it feels like sort of taking the veil away of mm-hmm. where we're not just making art for other artists. Cause that's what it feels like sometimes when mm-hmm. you get into these yeah. worlds, especially if you are a studio rat and I do lots of studio work mm-hmm. that is only ever seen by other artists yep. <laughs> that, you know, never gets seen by anyone else. Um, and there's, so- yeah, there's nothing wrong with being a studio rat. That's not, <laughs> that's not to say like, right. It's definitely like uh worthwhile and, and brought a lot of joy to our lives for sure. But yeah, at some point it's like, well, how do I get this to a broader audience? <laughs> And does it mean anything to a broader audience? Like, and that that was something like, you know, I think uh, that we questioned. So that's why I love working inside of pop culture, especially with Halloween stuff and spooky season things, because um, it I get to play to a broader audience. Right. Like the work that I do, the big free picture, even though it is 100% a conceptual piece. And like, mm-hmm. there are many, many layers in there. And it's all about identity. It's about my identity. Mm-hmm. I am one of the boys in that picture. And so that story and everything about that is all conceptual art piece. But it's also a really funny family portrait right? Um, with a fun pop song. And that was yeah. the reason we wrote it as a pop song. And I didn't want to do the kind of installation that was going to be all atmospheric noise and things mm-hmm. like that, because I know that like that pushes what we call regular folks right out of the room sometimes, yep. like someone yep. that just kind of stumbles into the momentary that just happens to be in town looking at art. They go into something like that and it's all atmospherics and that you can't understand it, then they're going to walk out confused and they're going to be like, why? What am I looking at? Why am I looking at this? So for me, it's important to try to do something that has a broader appeal, at least sometimes, (laughs) you know, Um, and then everyone can join in and it makes art less scary for people that are not totally engaged in it. I think there's a way to trick people into 
uh, understanding the different layers of something. Like mm-hmm. with the big free picture, that was all about my identity. It was all about me becoming Rum Wolf and what it means to come out of Arkansas and not go by my real name anymore and, you know, not just be considered a hillbilly or a redneck from <laughs> <laughs> from the mountains. But I'm I can't just lay that right out for people like that. I need them to have fun and then they'll understand it. Yeah. That was kind of the point of uh making that song something that can get stuck in your head yeah. and something that is actually fun to listen to instead of like, you know, I could have written another sad bastardy Elliot Smith finger picking mm-hmm. tune. I've written lots of those <laughs> over the years. And uh, I noticed that people don't enjoy listening to them, <laughs> <laughs> even when they're good songs. I'm just like, yeah, but this is a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think like that, that is something you do as an artist, I think, stumble into later in life, too, is like that, that mixture of accessibility with that mixture of being earnest and truthful to yourself. It's something like early on, it's almost like you want to fight against that because you don't want to be like too accessible. Although I think things are changing, like a lot of people are, are really looking to be accessible early on. Yeah, no, I think you have to kind of go through both. You have to go through like the Elliot Smith sad shit and you have to go through like the more poppy stuff to really uh, experience and know how to, uh, you know, talk to a true experience and, and make that experience accessible to other people. I, I say this to a lot of the younger artists that are doing interactive work and installations. It's like if you want people to interact with your work, if you really want them to interact with it, you have to first make it easy for them. Mm-hmm. And then once they trust you, and it's just like this with songs. Once they trust you, then they'll do a little bit more work. Mm-hmm. So if I get people to come into the Big Free Picture and they like that Big Free Picture pop song, then I can be like, well, what do you think about this folksy country sad one that I yeah. wrote too? <laughs> exactly, you know? exactly. That one's over here as yeah. well. They trust you. But it's like if you open the door with that. Yeah. I don't want that. <laughs> I already, I already have all Jeff Tweedy's albums. I don't need yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, in a way, you're asking them to break rules, right? Because a lot of these sort of artworks, or I mean, installations and interactive pieces, are in museums, and we're used to, you know, behaving a certain way yeah. or being able to like look at a painting and 15 seconds later walk away. But like, no, we're asking them to break the rules and like leave that behind. So that's mm-hmm. scary for a lot of people. And like you said, it's kind of straddling. You know, what will they take? What will they? They trust to mm-hmm. kind of, I guess, find out who. Yeah, people don't want to touch artwork. A lot of the mm-hmm. pieces that I make, like some of my sculptures and things that you might have seen on my Instagram, like the big TV sculptures, mm-hmm. those are all designed for people to touch them. They can get broken if they want. I'm not too precious about it. I try to make almost everything out of um, found or discarded items. And mm-hmm. it is hard to get them because they do the same thing that everyone does with art. You know, they put their hands behind their back, yep. mm-hmm. try to look at it. And I'm like, no, no, you don't have to do that here. Yeah. You can touch this one. You can <laughs> yeah. breathe on it. You can breathe on it. You can be a part of it. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of which, a lot of your work does speak to pop culture, does speak to horror quite a bit. Like you have those, I think you're talking about the uh, the TV installations with the sculptures kind of built around them that are very like, I don't know, blob, like <laughs> evil dead sort of <laughs> shit going on with them. Yeah. Uh, how would you describe those? And like, how did you, what, what made you, um, what brought the horror into your work, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, um, it really started because I wanted to be a filmmaker first and mm-hmm. foremost. So uh-huh. in my early 20s, you know, as, as someone that comes out of the 90s, filmmakers were were rock stars and gods back then. Mm-hmm. You know, this was the time of Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez and Richard Linklater. And so when I was, you know, coming of age, um, we all wanted to be filmmakers, you know, mm-hmm. all me and my little pack of, of weirdos that we all <laughs> kind of find in life. And so I was trying very hard for a long time to make films. I made several films, um, Mm -hmm. feature length films, all micro budget stuff. I got kind of wrapped up in the, you guys remember the mumblecore movement with the Duplass brothers and Joe Swansburg Mm -hmm. and um, all those guys. I I had some friends that 
Greta Gerwig was part of this too before mm-hmm. she became Greta Gerwig. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she should check out her movie Hannah Takes the Stairs that they were making back on oh, Mini wow, DV no, back in the, the early two yeah. thousands. Wow. And Is so it like Barbie, or <laughs> it's not like Barbie. <laughs> it's it's interesting stuff. I, I got kind of caught up in that movement because it became in the early two thousands is when first Mini DV cameras and then HD cameras came out. And so then it suddenly became possible to actually make a full movie with no money, you know, and that's where Mm -hmm. these micro budget features started coming around. And so I made several of those. Uh, They were bad. All of them. (laughs) (laughs) They're. Uh, you can still you can see one. There's one on YouTube called Dinosaur World. That's the first one I okay. made. Yeah, send, um, well, so, send us the link. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, definitely. You, you uh, don't don't feel ashamed if you get bored and turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> I came from a place of essentially trying to make a lot of dramedies and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I wasn't at first. I wasn't making horror. I was mm-hmm. into horror. I've always been attracted to horror since I was a little kid. Um, and uh, my toy collection is almost all horror. So Universal monster stuff. Frankenstein's, Wolfman's, mm-hmm. all these toys that I was collecting. But then the movies I was making, I was, you know, much living much more in the just narrative sort of talky, situational comedy type stuff. Mm-hmm. Making those, I found out that nobody wanted to see them because they weren't. <laughs> in order to do those well, you have to have, first of all, your story needs to be really good. Yeah. And your writing has to be top notch. And then your actors really have to pull it off and be engaging. And if all those things don't work, then you can't ask someone to sit for an hour and a half and just watch people talk, right. you know? Right. And so um, once I made several of those and uh, spent a lot of my own money and did not get into any film festivals and got mm-hmm. very, very discouraged, filmmaking is a heartbreaking world to get into. I can because imagine. It's, it's just <laughs> awful. No, you can't. You can't go anywhere on your own. Like, mm-hmm. There's no film festival. Like you're not going to get into Sundance. You're just not right. unless you know somebody and actually have real, you know, mm-hmm. real production value. But so what I decided to do instead was instead of making these sort of long feature length dramedies is I was like, well, let's make a few short horror films and see what we can do with that, because mm-hmm. those are at least fun. You know, people <laughs> like to watch them. And we did like get into some film festivals with those a couple of short form horror movies. They weren't any good either. But I started working more in horror once I started doing the horror films. And then what happened through those films is I started, I accidentally started a band called The Ghoul Goes West. (laughs) There's a famous script that Bella Lugosi um, was once promoting called The Ghoul Goes West. It never got made. But if you go back and watch old footage of, I don't know if you know this, but Bella Lugosi, toward the end of his life, he ended up in rehab because he was a heroin addict. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so he had a really sad mm-hmm. end, essentially. But there's old news footage of Bela Lugosi coming out of rehab and he's uh, being interviewed by someone and they're asking him what's next on his list and to do. And he says, oh, I'm working on a new film called The Ghoul Goes West. <laughs> and so I um, when I was making my first movie, Dinosaur World, I was writing all the, the music for it because, um, you know, that's how you do it cheaply. And so I just put together a little group very quickly. And mm-hmm. then suddenly for the next five or six years, I had this band called The Ghoul Goes West. And so everything I was doing at that time ended up being horror themed. Like okay. all the music <laughs> I was writing came out horror themed. It's because some of the other guys in the band were also into horror stuff. And so it just kept pushing and pushing more into horror. And then before I knew it, I was like, it was a part of all my work mm-hmm. because it's fun, number one. Yeah. Uh, and it was such a huge part of my history. So a lot of the work I was doing, even when I was making those dramedy films, I was still on the side collecting toys like a total right, nerd. Right. Uh, and all of that stuff was all pop culture stuff, all all Frankenstein's and Wolfman. 
And so um, for some reason, I don't know why, I just gravitated towards those when I was a kid. I just loved mm-hmm. monster stuff. And some of it, I think, had to do with the 80s because that stuff was around everywhere back then. You know, if you think about all those Spielberg fil- films that he produced, like Poltergeist and Gremlins, um, there was this whole oh, yeah. horror sort of uh, reawakening that was happening in the mm-hmm. 80s. I mean, look at Freddy and Jason. I mean, those were like, for anybody that's my age, that you know what those characters are. They were mm-hmm. around everywhere. And they weren't just... They weren't just R-rated horror movies either. They would have television shows and then they had toys mm-hmm. for them. You know, Freddy is a guy who kills children and yep. I have action figures and dolls of him that were made yep. in the 80s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, and then I went through a whole phase in my 20s. This is probably why I was not making horror films right out of the gate is because I was like, I can't do that. I've got to be more earnest than that. And I'm mm-hmm. going to go full art house, you know? Mm-hmm. And so no horror. I'm not going to watch anything that has anything to do with horror. I'm just going to be watching Fellini films. And so I had spent a long time, probably, you know, seven or eight years where I was pretty much only consuming, you know, very uh, highbrow foreign films and things like that. A a lot of us go through that for sure. And then um, I don't know, it got to a point when I started getting into my 30s where I was like, you know, this stuff's not very fun. But you know what is fun is Evil Dead. That's really fun. (laughs) You know, Army of Darkness. That's really fun to watch. Yeah. And so then I went back in and it's like, sort of reintroduced myself to horror in a way that I hadn't consumed it in many years. Um, Basically, I had kind of stopped watching horror movies right around my 20s. And I ended with the Universal Monsters. Like everything I was watching was classic. It was all black and white classic stuff. I did not spend much time consuming Mm -hmm. um, 70s and 80s horror really until I got in my 30s. And then I started diving into that stuff and like just got became fascinated with the filmmaking that's on hand in that and the just the ingenious way they use these tiny budgets to make these incredible stories. And then it started to dawn on me that some of the stories in these things are so wild that no one ever gives credit to how amazingly inventive (laughs) some of these things are. If you think about all of the Freddy series, you're talking about a guy who kills people in their dreams. So that is a pretty highbrow concept, you know, but they made it into a cartoon, basically. And Freddy's like this, you know, quipping one line guy. Mm -hmm. But there's something about wrapping a very scary, actual, uh, inventive concept inside of this bubblegum wrapper Mm -hmm. that makes it easy to go down. Um, That became fascinating to me. And so then I started thinking like, oh, well, maybe you can have fun and still do something that actually means something, Mm -hmm. you know? And so exploring all these different horror films got me down the rabbit hole of 10 years of just watching every single horror thing I could get my hands on from the obscure stuff. And, you know, there's whole subcultures inside of all that stuff. Like once you get into Giallo films, have you ever mm-hmm. gotten in the, into that stuff? We did. Yeah. Recently because of uh, we, one of our listeners taught, that was an answer from one of our listeners for one of our color theory episodes and that oh, really? will be recorded in the future. So yeah, we got into it. Yeah. Well, and what I found with that stuff, just as a as a visual person, as mm-hmm. a visual artist, like horror movies have some of the most incredible visuals and colors. And I mm-hmm. love bright, poppy colors. You wouldn't know it well, by the room I'm in right now. But, yeah. <laughs> but I love anything bright, poppy that just speaks to me. You know, I like like what you guys have going on there with the pink in the background and everything. Immediately, I want to be in that room. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, getting more into horror like that and seeing like starting to deconstruct how they made those things. And then mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys do this as film fans, but I love watching behind the scenes documentaries. Yep. It, yep. I almost got to the point now where I kind of like watching the making of those, those movies, more, sometimes yeah. more than the movies. <laughs> 
We were working on a Videodrome film for our buddies who uh, made a Videodrome pod or a David Cronenberg podcast. So we got mm-hmm. we got real into watching the behind the scenes stuff, which I hadn't seen before. Like, that's crazy. Like yeah. the way they would use like I think they would use like sheep organs and balloons and like all these they crazy got special, creative. Yeah, yeah. All yeah. these crazy special effects, which like really speaks to art. I mean, that's essentially yeah. what it is. Craft. Right. Like, yeah, absolutely. Art and craft. Well, that's what happened with me. Yeah. You know, I I had no experience in the mm-hmm. art world whatsoever. None. Everything that I was doing was music based or film based. Mm -hmm. That's what I was working on. You know, Uh, I would draw and things like that, too. And I was doing a lot of graphic design work Mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, But I never really considered the performance art or the visual art world. I just Mm -hmm. I just wasn't it wasn't a thing that was around, number one. But then when it sort of exploded here in Northwest Arkansas, when Crystal Bridges opened up, I was, I think, 25 when that first happened. And then this whole area in the last, you know, 20 years has just become so art focused that I kind of accidentally found this home inside of uh, visual and performance Mm -hmm. art in a way that I could never I I was never accepted as a filmmaker or Mm -hmm. as a musician. It was like everything that I was doing was not accessible enough for a general audience. It was, Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe a little too weird, definitely too messy. And then when I found the world of installation art, which I didn't even know existed, I didn't even know that was <laughs> I didn't even know that phrase, yeah. you know, and never, most people don't. When I found that, uh, I was like, oh, my gosh, this this is where I should have been the whole time. What would have been different, though? Like you need that experience. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, yeah, it yeah, would have yeah, been. Then yeah. the way I got into it was so strange because it was through production work. There's a whole industry of uh, hotel AV. And this mm-hmm. is like if you go to a big convention or something yeah. and you see. Uh, there's somebody on stage and there's two screens on either side of them and they're given a PowerPoint presentation. So like general session and breakout type stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a whole industry that supports that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where I learned production for real. Before that, I was making movies. I was I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to run a camera. I didn't know how to set up lights. We just bought all that stuff because you could mm-hmm. and we just started doing it, you know, yeah. which is the best way to make art, as we all know. But because my movies looked awful, I was like, I need to learn how to work this stuff because I have it and I'm doing it wrong, I guess. So I got into this production job and through that is where I learned things like rigging and Mm -hmm. uh, working with projectors. And that's where I really started to find a home. Mm -hmm. I was trying to be a camera operator, basically. Mm -hmm. And then when projection was introduced to me, I just kind of took to it immediately. Mm-hmm. And it became sort of this uh, obsessive uh, projectionist and working with every single projector I could. I had all the resources available to me because I worked mm-hmm. for this large company. And that's where I learned how to do things like video mapping and projection mapping. Somebody from, say, Walmart or Tyson was coming in for a meeting and they want to do like, you know, just a regular projection screen. I'm like, well, you know what we could do is I could map it on that wall over there and make mm-hmm. it do all kinds of crazy stuff. And so I started bleeding the you know, some of my interest in uh, mm-hmm. visual art in with the corporate stuff. And then I started doing work at Crystal Bridges um, and setting up projectors, running shows, directing shows, uh, doing a lot of concerts where we do what's called IMAG. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before. No, it's basically if there's somebody on a stage and then there's a big screen there and then, you know, you're putting that image up on the screen. So if you go see oh, Wilco okay, or something, okay. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that's called IMAG. And so yeah. there's a whole system that goes to a multi-camera essentially broadcast um, and then there's a director behind it and that's what I was doing for a long time so I kind of found myself in a position where that that was a very niche market to be in and mm-hmm. I was the only, one of the only people in town doing that and so I was able to 
you know, spin up this little freelance business doing it. And once I started doing that for some of these art institutions, then I started introducing them to projection mapping. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever seen projection mapping or video mapping, you know that it almost always blows people's minds because Mm -hmm. they don't know that you can do that with it. They don't understand until you show them. Like if I have, you know, if I put a projector on this cup and I tell somebody, I'm like, I can make this cup look like it's glowing. But just that cup, you know? And once you show people that, then that opens up their minds in so many ways. So I did that at Crystal Bridges a few times. And then they Mm -hmm. started bringing me in to do things like projection map their Halloween party and things like that. The only problem was they refused to call me an artist. They essentially just thought of me as a stagehand, you know? And so I kept doing these more, you know, uh, it kept getting increasingly complex where I wasn't just coming in and setting up a projector. I was designing all the visuals Mm -hmm. and doing a full installation. This is where I really uh, found myself in the world of installation art because I was trying to figure out a way. I was getting really upset. They wanted to, they would not credit me for any of my work. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is art, what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah. This is, I mean, I'm in an art museum. I designed all these visuals. It was like, this is art. I'm not putting stuff on the wall. I mean, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm putting I'm putting art on the wall at a museum. It's like at that point, I felt like I had enough confidence to start telling people I was an artist. Yeah. But then I had to go through this whole phase that took years where I had to convince everybody that I was an artist, that I wasn't just a stagehand. Because that's what they think you are, you know, when you show up and you're working with all the production people. You know, mm-hmm. you could be directing the show, but if you're pushing a piece of equipment, then they think you're a stagehand. Gotcha. Because they don't respect that kind of work. Right, right. But I spun that career into this art career, basically. I tell a lot of young artists this too. It's like, artist is not a job that you apply for and no one's going to give you that title. No. Like, you have to basically give yourself that title. Yeah. That's just the way that works. And it's like, you have to feel, I'm sure you guys dealt with this before. There's this imposter syndrome that happens where you're like, well, I can't be called an artist because I don't have a painting on a wall, you know, or <laughs> I don't have, the, you know, there's all these different right. rules that we put in our heads. Like, I never called myself an artist when I was making those films for 10, 15 years, but I definitely was. I mean, I was making art constantly. Yeah. Until I owned that, though, it didn't feel real anymore. Mm-hmm. What's funny is like right around that time is when I also started going by Rum Wolf. It like mm-hmm. all kind of happened all at the same time, yeah. which I'm, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe that opened up my mind a little bit. I'm like, okay, well, if I have a big, crazy fake name, then definitely I'm an artist now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say, Rum Wolf, that you're hosting... Rumwolf Halloween Festival. Okay, and you can curate two to three things for our listeners to watch, read, or experience, all Halloween themed. Yes. Okay, so what oh. are you selecting? Basically, like we need your recommendations for our listeners. To yeah, check what out. would you recommend? <laughs> it's like your film festival. Yeah. Our listeners are gonna watch it. Oh, You've curated wow. this. It's the Rumwolf Film Festival. We're doing it like not officially, right? It's kind of virtually. No, yeah. Right. <laughs> that sounds like a dream come true, yep. first off. Yep. <laughs> So I'm going to say, um, film-wise, mm-hmm. I'm going to recommend a movie called Demons 2. Okay. And in fact, if you can, if Sequel. I can do two, I say Demons 1 and Demons 2 are both okay. incredible. But Demons um, 2, if you have to narrow it down to one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I would say go with two. If, okay. if anyone saw the latest Evil Dead movie, Evil mm-hmm. Dead Rise, mm-hmm. um, D- I, I uh, have a theory that um, they pretty much were just remaking Demons 2, which okay. all takes place inside <laughs> of an apartment building. Much like uh, the new Evil Dead movie does, which okay. I love that new Evil Dead movie as well. So definitely everyone should check out Demons 2. Um, it's uh, an Italian movie. It definitely okay. fits inside of the sort of inside the Giallo world. What, what year is it from? I think it's from 1985, maybe maybe 84. Okay. And so it's not like, you know, your traditional Giallos are usually mm-hmm. like a guy in gloves and strangling people. This is all 
crazy demons, uh, you know, crazy special effects, but it's so much fun to watch. Okay. And so definitely I would say put that on the list. Okay. As far as experiences go. Experience, it could be a book. It could be, it could be a spooky soundtrack. That's, oh, that's a good idea. Actually, there is this really great spooky soundtrack. And I will say the, I will say, I'll just wrap this all into one giant collection of things. Mm -hmm. So in the 60s and 70s, there is a whole run of Halloween novelty albums. You can you can get them anywhere. I'll send you some links to them, to some specific ones. Um, but Disney made a lot of them. Okay. Uh, they're basically like party records. You know, you you play them in the background. Right. It's with back when they had something called a party record. Uh, <laughs> and there'll be sometimes there'll be spooky music. Sometimes they're just sound effects. Um, but they're wow. so what's so nice about them is that yes, the records to listen to them is very cool. But the covers are what you really want oh, them because okay, okay. they're visually they're stunning. They okay. are the the artwork on them is always just completely amazing. If you know that kind of art style that was happening in the 60s and 70s. I hinted at this in my email a little bit. There was a lot of design work that was big, bright, poppy, and there were monsters on everything. Yeah. Like, you know, that's when they invented there's a whole line of cereal from the 60s and 70s. It's all monster based. We're still eating it today. You know, Boo Berry and Count Chocula. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy when you think about that. Like there yeah. was something about people were just obsessed with monsters in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And so definitely that experience those records, experience that demons too. The last one I'll say is there is a small uh, company, a little startup company out of Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. uh, or I'm sorry, Philadelphia. It's called Atomic Home Video. Um, and they are part okay. of this wave uh, of, of folks in the Northeast that are making and curating Halloween compilation tapes. And so okay. I have one. Uh, I have three of their products called Halloween Time Warp. And basically, these are VHS tapes that have just uh, endless amounts of commercials, movie Ooh. clips, um, uh, horror movie amazing. hosts. I was actually yeah. just watching one this morning. And so if you check them out on Instagram, you can see they and they curate. They will curate anything you want spooky. Like you send all your listeners to Atomic Home Videos Instagram. Uh, there's nothing on that page that is not going to be Halloween. <laughs> it's all it's all incredible. So I would okay. check those guys out. OK, so they got their they got their main screen where they're watching Demons 2. And then if there is a moment in the movie where they look at their phone, I suggest they don't do that. But they could go <laughs> then to the Instagram account of Atom- you said Atomic Home Atomic, Video. Atomic Home Video. Yeah. OK, OK. And they put a lot of work into these Halloween compilations. It's incredible because it'll be like, you know, you might be looking at an image of uh, a TV commercial from the 70s that's mm-hmm. like uh, for Count Chocula. And then they'll cut that together with, you know, the next one is like part of a Halloween episode from Beverly Hillbillies, which is incredible, <laughs> you know. Or like the Roseanne Halloween special or something oh like that. God. And so <laughs> it's nice because you just put that in and you remember that. You remember those Roseanne Halloween specials and how when you would watch those, at least this is what I thought. I thought, why is my Halloween not like that? It looks so incredible. Every one of those things. And so <laughs> to take all those cool pop culture Halloween ideas and just smash them together into one big two hour compilation. It's like a dream come true because I just put it on in the background and just let it play all day long. It's that so awesome. comforting, you know, I would have thought watching commercials all day would be comforting. But for some reason, it feels like uh, I don't know. And where should we send our listeners to check out your your work? Where would you like them to go? Instagram, for sure. That's where okay. that's where I pretty much put everything now is uh, that seems to be the, the best way to get it to the masses. So it's just at Rum Wolf. And uh, that's where you'll find me doing a lot of live streaming there and putting up pictures and you can see all the pictures from my Halloween party I just put up there so it's a it's a we had a blast so awesome thanks for yes, thanks for coming thank you thanks guys have a good one <laughs>